Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Before I start, I want to let you know I forgot to say this at the very beginning, and that is that uh, pray for Brian Sachs. His mother passed away yesterday, and so that's why he's not here with us this morning, and so be praying for him as he works through that. And if you want to send him a text this afternoon, tell him you're praying for him. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. So, and it's a good reminder to silence your cell phones. There we go. Uh, Mark chapter 8. Sometimes uh, I start thinking about different ideas and get some kind of crazy ideas. And sometimes it kind of scares some people in our home. And... One time uh, I was at our house in South Carolina and had this idea of, of putting a slide from the upstairs. We had a two-story house up from the upstairs, downstairs. That would sound like a great idea. That? My kids thought it was great. I even had sometimes these ideas of putting a zip line in the backyard and just crazy things like that. I didn't do any of those ideas because I make sure I run them by Dana first. And, uh, and, and a lot of them are just like crazy ideas. They're not things I'm actually really going to do. And then sometimes I get this idea. I'm like, oh, I think I can do that. Of course, that's what... A lot of men say right, right before they call the professional to come in and fix their, what they messed up. But, um, but there's many times where I'll say, hey, this is something I'm thinking about doing, you know. Um, and, and she'll sometimes sit back and go, oh, I don't know. But she usually, <laughs> usually lets me do it because she trusts me, right? Not, not all the time because sometimes I'm fallible and I make mistakes. And, and unfortunately, uh, I uh, am not trustworthy sometimes with, with my ideas. But my point is, is that when you have a relationship with someone, they generally trust you with what they love, what they have. In our passage today, we're going to learn about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. But what results from that is that we should then trust him. Jesus taught his disciples here in in Mark chapter 8 that a disciple should know him and also they should trust him. That trust is built upon the relationship of knowing him. And so last week we talked about what it meant to know Jesus. And we said it was, yes, making sure it was accurate and true. That's, that's so important and essential. But it was more than that. It was actually beyond just intellect. It was relational. It was personal. It was practical. And so we looked at the first component of a discipleship's relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have a bulletin, you can open up and see the outline in there. We're going to look at point two today. So point one was that a disciple should know Christ, pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then number two, we're going to look at today that a disciple should trust. Trust what Christ wills. Now your bulletin says desires or something else it does, but actually I changed it. So it's trust what Christ wills. And the next week we'll look at follow how Christ leads. Look with me down in, in Mark chapter number eight. And I'll start reading in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, 
verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the truth of the word of God. And I pray today that that truth will just come across so clearly as we teach your word. This is not a time for me to give my opinions. God, I pray that you'll help anything that comes across to be truly what you would have me say from the word of God. And I pray that you'll give us attentive hearts and help us to understand and apply these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're learning in Mark chapter 8. And just picture the scene. I said they were, they were traveling up to Caesarea Philippi. Remember we said that was about 25 miles away from Galilee. So that's a long trip to take on foot. And on that way, Jesus taught his disciples. One of the ways he taught them is he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And he, of course, he knew the answer. He was looking to see what they would say. And Peter said, you are the Christ. And we saw saw last week in Matthew chapter 16 that he said, you are the Christ. And Matthew added that he said, the son of the living God. And then verse 31, you can look down there. And we see that Jesus then transitioned and he began to teach them what God's will was for the Messiah. So, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm God himself. I mean, co-equal with God. But also, here's what the will for the Messiah for, for me is. Look at verse 31. He said, the Bible says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer. Now, when you see that term, that title, son of man, what does that mean? Well, Jesus was referring to himself. And he was referring back to, as someone said, back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is actually a designation of a title for the Messiah. But also, listen to this. This is what Daniel seven fourteen says about what the Son of Man means. It says, the Son of Man will be given, listen, authority, glory, and sovereign power. Uh, who has all those things? God. And All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. This is talking about the very end of time. So think about that. Who is that person? That's God. Only God can be worshipped. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. What's he saying then? I'm God. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. God, Messiah. And so he's saying this is what must happen to this son of man as he's living on this earth. It says he must suffer many things and be rejected. Notice verse 31, it says that he began to teach them. This is a very significant word, began, because it marks the beginning of his really clear teaching to his disciples about how his life is going to end. In fact, what's happening here from Caesarea Philippi, he will travel then down through Galilee, and he'll come down to Jerusalem. He'll make his way, and his journey he's taking is a journey down to Jerusalem to be rejected and to be crucified and then to be resurrected. In fact, if you look down in verse number 31, you can see there are, are four infinitives that describe what will happen to Jesus at the end. 
And verse 31 says he was very clear about this, about what was going to happen to him. So what are these four infinitives? Well, you can see it. There's one is he's going to suffer. Then he's going to be rejected. Number three, he's going to be killed. Number three, four, he's going to rise again. And notice he says these things must happen. This wasn't just a possibility. This wasn't just, it, it wasn't even him dreading. Like, I hope this, no, this is, he's like, this is God's sovereign plan for the world and for me as the son of man. Why is it that those things must happen? Well, because all of those things were an important part. All those four infinitives were import, an important part of God's rescue operation to provide salvation to humanity. Think about this. As humans, we all have sinned against God. We've rejected God. Because we've rejected God, we deserve to suffer. We deserve to be rejected. Someday we deserve to die physically and then to die spiritually. It means we're separated from God forever. That's what we deserve. And what did Jesus do for us? Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. He died Physically and spiritually, he was separated from his father. He took hell upon himself. And we call this the atonement. The idea of the atonement is that there's a sacrifice that covers sins and allows reconciliation to take place. And so we call this sometimes the substitutionary atonement, which means that Jesus earned with his life and his death, he earned our salvation. Isn't that pretty awesome? It's pretty awesome to think about. Last week I was studying some things and trying to come up with some uh, father um, illustration because it was Father Day, <clears throat> Father's Day. And I came across a little story that I thought was kind of cute. And so I'll tell you too this morning. There was a, a boy that was uh, a man when he was writing this. This was a, a magazine from the 1980s. So this guy's probably passed away. I don't know. Now, who knows? <laughs> it's a long time ago. But he was saying when he was a young boy, his parents were very strict about being at the table when they were going to eat. Now, you say that in America, and people are like, table when you're going to eat? What does that mean? Yeah, because people used to sit around the table and eat together. <laughs> and so if you didn't sit at the table when it was time to eat, you didn't eat. And so his family was very strict about that. And so, you know, his parents would call him in, come on, come in, and he's out there playing. Well, one day he decided to ignore his parents and just play, and then he came in a little later, and he came to the table to sit down. And there's mom and his dad, and the rest of everyone else was sitting around with their plates full of food, and where he was supposed to sit was bread and water. And so, of course, he's a little boy, so he sits down, and he's really hungry because he's been outside playing, and he's downcast, he's sad. And his dad takes his plate full of food, and he gives it to his son, and he takes his son's plate and gives it to himself. And the, the kind of the point of the story is this, this man wrote, he said, as an adult, I now have an understanding of what God is like when I think about my father and how he substituted his plate for mine. That father offered a, you could say this way, a substitutionary atonement, right? He took his son's empty plate or with hardly anything on it, and he exchanged it for his full plate. And that's what Jesus did for us when he suffered and he died for us. And I just want to think through this because this is so important. This is the beginning of Jesus teaching this to his disciples. And this is kind of shocking for them. It's, it's like he's alluded to it before, but now he's like plainly saying, this is what is going to happen. It's actually really important for us to understand too. In fact, notice something. Look down in verse 31. 
the first essential part of the atonement is actually before the, fir- the first four infinitives. It says that he is the son of man. Now you think, well, what, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Well, I'm talking about the fact that Jesus lived as the son of man. In other words, he lived a perfect life on this earth. That's actually a very important part of the atonement because he lived the life that you could never live. He lived a perfect life of obedience uh, according to the law of God. And, it's, it's, and a lot of people like to think, well, I, I'm trying to be good enough for God. I'm trying to earn forgiveness before the Lord. But that's impossible for you because you're a, a sinful person and you can't be good enough for God. You can't atone or earn your own forgiveness. Only Jesus can and only Jesus did that for you. In fact, Romans 5.19 says this. As by one man's obedience, and who's that one man? Jesus, many will be made righteous. So the first one is you needed Jesus to live a righteous life so he can give that to you, can grant that to you. Second essential element of the atonement is the first infinitive, which is this, is that he suffered in your place. And you might ask the question, why did he need to suffer? Why did it have to be? Why couldn't he just die? Why did he have to go through suffering or well let me ask this question why is there suffering kind of before we got to talk about why jesus suffered why is there suffering this past week i was um in my office and my door was open and all of a sudden i think it was about probably 4 30 or 5 o'clock i don't really know and all of a sudden this guy pops his head at my door hi you know <laughs> that can be kind of scary you know <laughs> and uh and so he decided to sit down and talk to me so i sat down and talked to him and um, and we had an interesting conversation and I was able to talk to him about the Lord and he wasn't a believer. One of the things he was really working through and struggling through is the fact that there's suffering in the world. And he said, I don't believe the Bible because I don't think God would allow suffering to take place. So what's the answer to that? What's the answer? Why is their suffering. So I, so I talked to him about that. And I said, talk to him about how in the very beginning, God created everything good. There was no suffering. There was no death. Genesis 1 and 2, God created a perfect world for, with perfect uh, humans in a, in a perfect environment. But in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rejected God and God cursed this world with suffering and, and death. And as a result of our rejecting him, a curse came upon us all. And I told him this, like God allows us to go through suffering as a way, um, as a suffering So we can understand that life without God is painful. He actually promised Adam and Eve that. Like, if you guys reject me and sin against me, you're going to have a painful life. You're going to die. It's going to be very bad. And actually, it was. And so suffering in this world reminds us that, that, listen, there's, there's something wrong in this world. And actually, suffering on this earth reminds us that there's a greater suffering to come if you continue to reject the Lord. And so sometimes we think about suffering, we think about pain, and we think, man, it's, it's bad. Now, let me ask you that question. Is suffering, or I should say it this way, is pain bad? Is pain bad? Well, it's not enjoyable, right? We don't like it. But actually, sometimes it's a good thing. You've heard the story probably before that I, a number of years ago, cut my thumb off. Remember that story? That was pretty painful. But you know what? I'm actually glad I experienced pain, so I didn't cut the rest of my hand off. 
right? In some sense, pain tells you, oh, something happened, something's going on, let's stop, there's a problem. And that's kind of what the pain of this world does. It's like, oh, there's a problem, what's going on? And what we should recognize is the problem is with us, right? The problem isn't with, with God. And so God sometimes, allow, God has allowed pain in this world to tell you that something is wrong, you are rebelling against the Lord. So here's the beautiful part of the story. Jesus suffered... In your place, First Peter three eighteen. For Jesus also suffered for sins once, the righteous—that's Jesus—for the unrighteous—that's you. So Jesus suffered. So think about it. his suffering as he his life ended. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was whipped. He was nailed to a cross. I mean, he faced suffering in our place, and he was absorbing within his own soul in his own life the eternal suffering that you deserve in hell another aspect of the atonement was that he was rejected in our place now why was it necessary for him to be rejected well because we have rejected god we deserve to reject be rejected by god and so you look in verse 31 it says he began to teach them many things and then later on in the verse it says he taught them that he would be rejected by the elders the chief priest and the scribes. Now, those are the people that should have celebrated his Messiah, his coming as the Messiah. They should have been cheering him on, but they rejected him. In fact, you think about it this way, everybody rejected him. His disciples rejected him. The, the Jewish people rejected him. The Roman soldiers rejected him. Even the guy dying on the cross next to him rejected him, except for the other guy who accepted him. Everyone rejected him, even his father. Jesus looked up and said, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus faced the rejection you deserve. And last was Jesus faced death. He experienced death in your place. And death in simplest of terms is basically just separation, separation. It's separation physically, like your body will die. It's separation spiritually. You'll be separated from God forever. And it's separation eternally. It, it never ends. It never ends. Last element there then is his resurrection. And that's when he powerfully gained victory over sin. So he lived a perfect life and he gained victory over sin. He suffered in our place. He was rejected in our place and he experienced death in our place. And resurrection said that he was the victor over all of those. So therefore, the news that Jesus gave his disciples was very good news, wasn't it? In fact, if you're in here today and you've not received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, like, that's good news for you right there. In fact, let me just read on to say what 1 Peter 3.18 says. For Christ suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, to be reconciled to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And, and so my prayer for you in here, if you're not, uh, if you're not a believer, if you don't, uh, haven't believed in Jesus Christ, is that today that you would be reconciled to God. And so this is good news. Now, if you think this is good news, why don't you say amen? amen? But you know what's interesting is Peter actually didn't think this was good news, did he? So much so that he actually took Jesus alongside him, put his arm around him and said, Jesus, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, notice in verse 32, Jesus said this plainly to him. And Peter took him alongside and began to rebuke him. Peter was not happy 
about the will of God for his life and for Jesus' life. I mean, think about it. Peter was flying pretty high at this moment, wasn't he? Right? I mean, he had all these things that were happening to him a couple of months earlier. He was walking on water. That's pretty cool. He, he gets asked the question, who do you think that I am? And he says the answer. I mean, you know what? You've been in class and you're the one that stands up and you answer the question and nobody else knows it. I mean, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And not only that, but Matthew 16 says this, that Jesus complimented Peter and he said, I say to you, Peter, that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, if you're Peter, you're thinking, yeah, right there. Like, I'm thinking I'm pretty good. Like, this is pretty great. So pretty much whatever I'm thinking is probably true because Jesus is saying you're a pretty great person, right? And what the arrogance, uh, how arrogant was Peter when, when Jesus said, well, let me tell you what actually is going to happen with the will of God for the Messiah is it, and Peter puts his arm around Jesus and pulls him alongside and says, Jesus, actually, I don't think that's what we're going to do. That's a bad idea. Like you're going to suffer. What does that mean for me? Like, I don't want to suffer. That's not what I was thinking, right? Like, we were, aren't we going to conquer? You're the Messiah. You're the king. Like, you're supposed to conquer, not suffer. Like, you're going to be rejected by the Jewish people and the leaders. Actually, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't they be accepting you? And, and, and shouldn't they actually celebrate you? And you're going to be killed? Whoa. Like, I'm not thinking death, Jesus. Like, this is not where I was going with this. Like, I was actually thinking we're ruling and reigning with you. We're going to be saved from these oppressive Romans and Jesus declared God's will and Peter and let's, let's just give it to him. He obviously didn't understand, right? But God revealed his will to him and Peter, instead of trusting God's will, instead of trusting the will of Jesus Christ, he chose to reject the Lord. So one of the components of a discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ is a disciple must trust the will of the Lord. Trust the will of the Lord. Now, sometimes when you say the will of God or the will of the Lord, sometimes people automatically think, they think, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's events in life. Like God's will is, you know, what's going to happen to me next week? And, you know, where am I, who am I going to marry? And things like that. And there's a sense where there are really two aspects to God's will. There's the, God's providential will. The Bible in Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there's the secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord our God. So there, there's secret things. In other words, there's counsels of the Lord that he decides. He's, pro, he's a sovereign. He rules history. He's moving history to his intended end. So there's a providential rule. But when God talks about the will of God in the scriptures, most of the time it's actually talking about God's revealed will. So in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's God's providential will. But the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. Well, where are the things that are revealed in the scriptures? You can't know God's providential will until it happens or unless God's word says this is going to happen in the future. Sometimes people think about God's providential will and they think, well, I need to discover this. You know, it's like, I need to look this out. God's word never tells you to do that. You know, you're not to try to tell the future. You should trust God's providential will. Like if something happens to you, okay, that's God's providence. But also you need to look into God's word and say, God, what do you want me to do? Like, how do you want me to respond? How should I live by faith? Think about it this way. Say you go to McDonald's this afternoon and you're going to get some fries. Does that sound good? Some of you are like, sick, McDonald's? Okay, but just for sake of illustration, you go in there and 
you get the fries, you sit down, and you look at them, and they're burnt. Okay? So that was God's providential will that you had that. You couldn't control that. I mean, you couldn't be... Now, you can maybe go back and get some more back, right? But, but the point is, that that's God's providential will. Or maybe you're a young man, and you are thinking, man, I really would like to go on a date with this girl. And you ask her out, and she says yes. And God is pretty kind to you in his providential will that she's going to go out with you. But the question is, is how should you respond according to God's will in that situation? In other words, you're at the restaurant and your, your fries are burnt right there. What is God's will for how you should respond? Well, listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you could sit there and go, oh, there's fries. Okay, these people are you. Give me some new fries. You guys are terrible people. I can't believe McDonald's. What are you guys turning into, you know? So you could respond like that, but that's not God's will for you. God's will is actually to be thankful. And you might go up there and ask them for something back. But my point is, is God actually has a desire for how you should live and respond in, uh, in this world. And also, how about, how about this one? Maybe you're on a date with this girl and you think, she's a really nice girl. So what is God's will for how you should interact with her? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be pure. So what is God's will in regard to your dating that girl? You should be pure, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And so actually God has something to say about your dating relationship that you have. God wants you to be pure and avoid sexual immorality. And so my point is, you get the point. My point is that there's, we say God's will, and sometimes people just think just about God's providential will. And sometimes people think maybe just about God's revealed will. In the scriptures, typically it is just talking about the word of God, his revealed will. But my point is, Jesus kind of puts both of these together in some sense, because he says, this is going to happen. So it's God's providential will for me, Peter. This is what's going to happen. But also, this is God's revealed will. I'm, I'm telling you, this is what the Lord has. And so, so we must trust God's providential will. Trust the work of God. This is happening in my life. Okay, God. I know you're at work in my life, but also look into God's word and say, God, so how therefore do you want me to respond to this? How therefore, how therefore do you want me to respond to this? And what happens to Peter is when he, when he hears what Jesus has to say, he rejects the will of God for him. What is Jesus? How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 33. Turning, this is Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked. Peter, Peter rebukes him. Jesus rebukes him right back. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter rejected Jesus and what Jesus taught. Now think about this. How is it possible that Jesus could, or Peter could know all these things about Jesus? He could give the right answer. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You know, he could see all these things Jesus did. So he had a pretty, pretty clear understanding of who Jesus was. How could he have that understanding and then reject Jesus at this moment? Right? I mean, okay, this is God. This is the Messiah. He's probably got these things figured out. Oh, no, you don't got this one figured out, Lord. This isn't going to happen to you. I mean, why? How is that possible that that happened? Well, Peter chose to reject who he knew Jesus to be because he didn't like God's will laid out before him. He didn't like God's will laid out before him. And I've seen it over and over where people say, oh, I know God is good. I know God is holy. And they know who God is. But then when God's word is revealed to them and it's like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's not, no, I got a better idea. Like my way is better. 
When a person does something like that, they are then inserting them in the position of God. They're placing themselves in the position as the sovereign one who gets to decide the will for man. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. In fact, that's why if you look down in verse 33, Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because at that moment, Peter was acting like Satan. He had put himself in the place of God and said, I, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to follow God's will. I'm going to do what I want to do. In fact, isn't that what Satan does when he tempts us? Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? And Eve was in that garden there. And he's basically saying, don't follow your God's will. Don't follow God's will. Do what you want to do. In other words, be your own God. Run your own life. That's the temptation that Peter faced and gave into. Why didn't Peter trust in the will of God at that moment? Because <laughs> it was hard. It was difficult. It's kind of shocking. It wasn't what he expected. See, Peter's plans and his idea of life, and really for the Jewish people at the time, this was their idea of the Messiah. This Messiah is going to bring comfort to our life. This Messiah is, is going to help us. We're special people. And so things are going to be really good when he comes. And so when Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Of course, then Peter, I guess, didn't remember the last part, rise again. But, but that's, that was not good news for Peter. It wasn't what he was expecting. And so Jesus identifies his problem. What is it? Look down in verse number 33. That he did not. He says, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but the things of man. Peter's problem was he looked at the world from man's perspective and not according to the will of God spoken from the mouth of Jesus. To the worldly mindset that people have and we can have ourselves is, is that the primary goal of my life is to do what I want. And what do I want? Well, I want comfort and I want pleasure and I want happiness and and I want to do it my way, so that's what I'm going to do. And so people pursue comfort and happiness and all those things and, and just actually just want to exist in this world. In fact, that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He said, stop saying, what shall we eat? In other words, stop being like, oh, everything, I, I, my life's all about eating and what should I drink and what should I wear? Because that's what the Gentiles seek. The, the people who are unbelievers, who are not having a mind of God, who don't follow God, who don't love Jesus Christ, that's all they think about is this earthly world. But he says, listen, seek first the kingdom of God. When we have a worldly mind, we kind of put ourselves in the position of God and say, I'm going to build my little earthly kingdom here and make sure that my happiness is found within that little kingdom. Don't make your life about your puny material kingdom that will soon vanish away. Jesus rebukes him. Your mind is not on the things of God. What are the things of God? It's God's will. It's trusting that, that God, you're the one working providentially in my life through your providential will, but also God, I trust your will revealed in your word. I trust what you say about this world and about how you want me to respond. I think about it kind of like this. Think about your life, then think about one million years from now, when you're in eternity. One million years from now, and ask yourself, will I really care about what I care about now in one million years? 
the most important thing in my day yesterday, in one million years, how much will it be worth? Well, this little pain that I'm grumbling about or this problem that I think is huge, will it really be that big of a deal in a million years? What will I have wished I had done in my lifetime instead of groaning about the problem and seeking to flee it? I think sometimes when we put life into that perspective, it can help us see how self-centered and how foolish we are on a daily basis, can it? And really, there's two things in a million years that we really will care about. And that is, did I live my life in a close relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, did I really have joy, find my joy in him and delight in him? Is that, was that what my life was about? And, and did I do everything I could to advance his gospel? Those two things are what Jesus values. You know why? Because it's about him and it's about people, the people he loves. In fact, look down in verse number 35. The Bible says, Jesus says, whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, <clears throat> so you give it to God for two reasons, for my sake and for the gospels will save it. That, people, is what life is about. Jesus Christ, for my sake and for the gospel. Life is about living in relationship to the Lord and living on mission for the Lord. So as we consider our, our, our sufferings and our problems, as Peter was considering what might happen and what that meant, what where should his mind have been? What, where should our mind be? We should make decisions based upon two motivations, for Christ and for his gospel. The problem is we face suffering. We go, oh, I don't like that. Let me just say, do you realize the gospel advances around the world through suffering? I mean, think about it. Jesus suffered, died, was resurrected, and what do we get from it? Salvation. The disciples suffered, were persecuted, Almost all of them, except for John, the apostles, were killed. And what do we get from it? The gospel spread around the world. Do you realize today that there are Christians around our world being persecuted? In Nigeria on May 18th, the church service, a Nigerian church was interrupted. 17 Christians were kidnapped. This is according to USA Today, which is not really a Christian newspaper, Okay. This was reported on June 18th, 2019. 17 of those Christians were sold into slavery, slavery, were forced to marry a jihadist. 3,731 Christians were killed in Nigeria last year. That's probably a lowball number. In China, the Chinese Communist government is waking up to the idea that there are more Christians in China than there are communists. Oops. So you know what they're doing? They're imprisoning Christians. This is USA Today article, okay? This isn't Pastor Ben spitting off something that I'm, you know, reading from my fundamentalist websites. (laughs) This is actually reality. In India, 30 million Christians in India have been relegated to second-class citizens because of their faith. And they have a caste system there, so that's a pretty important thing. Hindu groups are attacking Christians with violence. And violence has increased um, against Christians since 2014 by 400%. Some are being expelled from the country. 
I don't know if you've been following what's going on in Hong Kong right now, but over 2 million people are marching the streets in Hong Kong. Do you know the majority of those people? you know what they are as far as their faith? They're Christians. In fact, if you, I went to New York Times, June 19th, 2019. You go to the article, you can see a video, and they have video after video of these, these protests. You know what they're doing? They're singing that Jesus shall reign. And what they're protesting is that the Chinese government wants to be able to take people in Hong Kong that break the law, which for them is being a Christian, and take them to China, to mainland China, which basically is a sentence of death for them. And so these Christians are in mass protesting this, and they're doing it peacefully. They're doing it through singing, and they're doing it through prayer, and God is using that. My point is this. Do you realize that there's suffering around the world? Now, let's go back just to some of our suffering, okay, right now. Some of the things we complain about in Simi Valley, California. But do you realize that God uses those things in, in Simi, but also around the world? He uses it to, to advance the gospel. I think about Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, These things happened so that the gospel may be advanced. So the point is that there, there, God's doing something in this world. and We need to have the perspective that God wants us to have, a perspective according to the will of God. Let me just show you something real quick. The disciples continue to struggle with this. Go to Mark chapter 9. Just notice the struggle the disciples have. It's like Jesus will teach something and they'll say, oh, that's that's suffering. I don't really like that. Maybe there's a better plan, Jesus. And disciples are so self-centered, so self-focused, which frankly, I think I can be that way and you can be that way. We can be so much about ourselves. We forget about our relationship with God. We forget about advancing the gospel. Look at Mark 9, verse 31. Mark 9, 31, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will be killed. I'm sorry, they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. So again, good news for the gospel. But for them, it was like, I don't know if I like this very much, suffering. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you discussing on the way? In other words, what are you guys talking about? And they kept silent. They felt guilty. (laughs) For on the way, they had argued with one another about who would be the greatest. Wait a second, guys. Jesus just gets through talking about how he's going to suffer. I mean, he's going to be humiliated. He's going to die. And you're like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the most important? Like, it's all about them. How about look over Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 32. Mark 10, 32, and it says, and when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed for those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So guys, remember here, I, I told you this a couple of times. Here's what's going to happen saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So that's pretty clear what's going to happen. So now, by now, certainly the disciples got it, right? Lord, we're going to trust the will of God in this. In verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, what is it? Close relationship with Jesus, advancing the gospel. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So when you're the king, you know, and you're ruling everything, like we want to be the most important people. 
That's really what we're looking at. And how sad is it that these disciples at this moment were thinking about paradise now. Like, how can I get this wonderful world we can live in? But actually, Jesus was saying, there's actually, that's a worldly way to think. That's a sinful way to think. It's actually going to be painful for you. But actually, you're looking to something that's better beyond the pain. And that's eternity. And the worldly mindset considers the primary goal of life to live for self, enjoying the things of this world. But the disciples, that they have a mind shift. They do change their thinking. And what changes for them? Of course, all those things do happen. But they're willing to go through suffering. What, what was it that changed? Well, they lived in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And as they knew the Lord, they began to trust him. And they made decisions to advance the gospel. And did they suffer? Yes, they did. Was it difficult? Yes. Did they sacrifice their houses and some family and earthly enjoyment? Yes. But they suffered for Jesus and God used them in an amazing way to see the gospel spread around the world. Now, I want to say this. Friend, it's not that we invite suffering into our life. You know, we don't enjoy suffering. We don't enjoy the pain. We don't ask for God to bring suffering upon us. We don't try to be uncomfortable. But we are willing to go through suffering because we know what is actually more valuable than our comfort. We know what's more valuable than what we see. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Loving God and loving other people. So 1 Peter chapter 4, Jesus, or Peter, learned this lesson. Let's listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, don't be shocked when there's pain in your life. It's going to happen. You know, we don't, we don't look at this year and think, oh, I wonder what painful thing is going to happen in my life. We don't think like that. But listen, it's, there's, there's going to be painful things that are going to happen, right? You live with sinners. Sinners sin. We lived in a sin-cursed world. And the sin-cursed world has suffering. So it's going to happen. But listen, what's your perspective on it all? Like, what should you look to? Look to God's will. So don't think it's strange when these things happen to you. But what? But rejoice. In other words, trust God. Rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings when his glory is revealed, and you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Enjoy the Lord now and look forward to the enjoyment of eternity. Like as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should pursue the knowledge of Jesus, not just intellectually, although we should learn about him, but also personally, relationally, And we also should go to his word and say, God, how thus do you want me to live and surrender our hearts to that? I I trust your will, God. I trust your will. Let's live our lives. For Jesus Christ, and let's seek to advance his gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, it's so hard sometimes to not be clouded by pain and difficulty. And, and God, there are times when we experience pain and God, we cry. I think that's okay. Jesus cried. Jesus wept. And Father, we don't enjoy the pain. We don't enjoy the suffering. 
But God, we look to something that is far more valuable than this world. We look to you. You are the reward. You are the gift. You are the joy. We look to eternity and being with you. And God, we are on this earth for a reason. And I, and I truly believe what your will, uh, what your word says, your, your will is revealed here that we are to live in relationship with you. So I pray for each one of these brothers and sisters in here in Christ. And God, I pray the, the priority of their life this week will be one of, of living in fellowship with God. And they'll truly cast their cares upon you. They'll truly pursue you in, in, in love. And then God, I pray that also we'll see the value of loving people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, as we see people drive by our, our church here, as we, we work with, with people who don't know you, as we think of relatives who are far from you, God, our heart breaks because we want them to experience what we have. And that is, that is the sweetness of knowing you. And God, we also want to see this church have new believers coming here, people who who have never heard the gospel, then hear the gospel, get saved. And so, God, will you do that for us? God, will you do a work in our church? God, use us for the mission that you've called us to. And I pray that you'll protect us in our mind and our thinking from the worldly way of thinking. It's so hard. I know I struggle with it. It's hard to look on social media, see the wonderful life that everyone seems to be living out there. But God, help us to look in your word and see the wonderful life that's to come. That's to come. And so, God, I pray for your, your grace. I pray for your grace. May your grace be upon our church. In Jesus' name, amen.